Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and our topic today is Inside the Doctor's Bag with our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello there. There's that bag, my favorite bag. <laughs> there you go. I know you love that. I don't take it out as much anymore except for our shows and occasionally when I go see some uh, private clients at their houses on house calls. That is so cool. That's like those traditional medical bags. I love that. Yeah, it's quite fun. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide today along with Christina as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, this one inside the doctor's bag. We're going to talk about a number of topics today, so welcome. <laughs> now, at any time during this show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, you could listen to this a year later, two years later. You can still make a comment, and we'll make sure that it gets to... Uh, Dr. Woolman, and we will reply to it. Now, if you're listening to us on a device and as, as a podcast, just pick up the phone and give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. There you go, Doc. Well, all right. Where are we going today? So, uh, first I want to uh, recognize something that's happening in the world today. There's mm -hmm. a lot of chaos going on and a lot of tragedy and uh, issues. Uh, certainly, we're all aware of what's going on in France and other parts of Europe right now. Uh, many people were lost their lives. Many people are fighting for their lives. Uh, police, military, uh, citizens... The government all came to do their part in the process, people opening their houses to strangers to get them out of the way of harm. But one of the things I wanted to mention, because it's Magical Medical Tour, is I want to send kudos to the medical community uh, in mm -hmm. Paris. When things happened, immediately all of these people, nurses, doctors, techs, all sorts of hospital people, went immediately to hospitals knowing that their services were going to be needed. So without question, they just took off and went to the hospitals getting ready to take care of all of these people. So I want to send great kudos out to them and certainly blessings out to all of the people uh, in uh, difficult times mm -hmm. right now. And uh, for something different, I want to send compassion to the people that um, caused this uh, episode uh, hopefully, at some point in time, we could all come together and find meaning uh, from a humanitarian point of view to live together in peace and happiness the way I believe it should be. Mm. <clears throat> Lovely. Thank you. Any thoughts from you? Uh, it's, been a, it's been a very moving time. I mean, for the past, is now it's explosive because, as, as uh, some people are saying, being in France, it feels so close to home. You know, mm -hmm. that's what I had heard some people say, you know, mm -hmm. over the radio broadcast and everything. Whereas, you know, when it was in the Middle East and the havoc was growing over there in Syria and Turkey, you know, people, it was still at a distance. But now it's like, wow, it's really close now. <laughs> so everyone's become really aware. Um, and I agree with you about the compassion and sending out the blessings, uh, Glenn, because I feel it's not just affected those people and their families, but it's created a lot of fear in the world right now. And we do funny things when we become very fear-based. 
So I, I believe that, you know, we have to send out the blessings in, in many, many forms and in many levels for, for people who, who are angry right now and who have created a lot of fear because that's when things start to escalate. Right. And, uh, you know, to send the blessings and like you said to that, uh, we will find balance. We will find balance of peace and harmony and, Oh, now that we're all connected with social media, hopefully mm -hmm. it will reach more people. Right. 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 All right. Uh, let's push on. Mm. And in, speaking of pushing on, last uh, episode we, speak, we spoke with and interviewed Pushan Chowdhury. And we talked about uh, pediatrics. And one of the major topics we spoke about was childhood obesity. And this is very important to me on many levels. Mm. So I want to continue a little bit of the discussion about childhood obesity. One of the things we talked about uh, was the bariatric surgery. Remember that? Oh, yes. And uh, we didn't really get into that. And I, right after uh, we did that episode, an article came out from the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the prestigious articles in medicine. Uh, probably most people even know about it other than just people in the medical profession. But it was an article uh, on bariatric surgeries uh, for obesity in childhood. Mm. And the concept being that we have over 4 million children and in the United States that have uh, experienced obesity. And there are concerns about health problems at the time and in the future. Mm. And so bariatric surgery, we talked about, was one of the last choices. First, we wanted to look at lifestyles and diets and a number of other things. But bariatric surgery is becoming more and more popular. So, Amongst just to get, children? Amongst adolescents. Uh, hmm. You know, we're talking about people from, say, eight years up. Uh, but this study, uh, and actually we're seeing... Uh, we're seeing uh, obesity even in two-year-olds, three-year-olds now. Yes. Uh, so this particular study that came out uh, studied the effects of bariatric surgery uh, over a three-year period. And the kids ranged from about 13, 14 up to about 19. Uh, and just to give you an idea, in 2003, there were approximately 800 cases of bariatric surgeries. And in 2009, it went up to 1,600, so it doubled. So these were things that were, were looking at things like weight loss, coexisting conditions, uh, weight-related quality of life, micronutrients. We'll talk about all of these things in a few minutes. And uh, the need for more abdominal surgical procedures. And so what happened was the study went from 2007 in March to 2012 in February, uh, and they took 242 kids, uh, and the, over a, th they did the surgeries, and then they followed them up at six months, one year, two years, and three years, and they did a number of testing, a lot of blood testing and imaging testing, and then there were questionnaires that they would fill out, you know, for instance, on a scale of zero to a hundred. Uh, before they started the test, before they did the surgery, what was, how did you feel your quality of life was? And the higher it went, the, the better they felt their lives were. 
So this was the test that they did at the New England Journal, and it was done at a number of uh, different centers. So there were six different hospitals that they collected the data from. And out of the 242 kids, there were three different types of surgeries. And this is what I wanted to bring up a little bit more, the bariatric surgeries that they offer now. The first one is called the Rue-en-Y gastric bypass. And this is spelled R-O-U-X hyphen E-N hyphen and then the letter Y, Rue-en-Y bypass. Uh, there's a nice uh, YouTube video on this for people that want to see it. But basically, it's all of these different procedures are designed to make the stomach smaller. So the, one of the reasons we have a stomach is so that it, depo- it deposits and stores the food uh, that we eat until the body can start digesting it. So the concept being that the smaller the storage area, the quicker the child will get hungry, um, the chick, quicker the child will get full more quickly, and then they won't eat as much, less calories, and that combined with a number of other things will make it so that they will lose weight. So that's the first one, the Rue-en-Y gastric bypass. Another one is, is called the uh, sleeve gastrectomy. And this is where they essentially narrow the entire stomach and they take away and remove a lot of the stomach uh, so that you have, instead of a a bigger mass or a bigger volume, you have something that might be the size of, say, a banana. Hmm. So they narrow it down and they make it less for storage. And again, the same uh, possibilities because the area is smaller, you get full faster, less calories, and hopefully you lose weight. And then the third one is the adjustable gastric uh, banding. Hmm. And in this one, they actually just take, they don't cut away any of the stomach and they don't reconnect parts of the intestine. Nothing like that is done. They just put a band around the upper portion of the stomach, the actual stomach organ. When I say Hmm. stomach, I don't mean the abdominal area. I'm talking about the organ, the stomach. They put a band around maybe the top third of it, and then they have the ability through a port uh, under the skin with a hypodermic needle, they could put in more air or less air so they can tighten the band or loosen the band. And by tightening it, again, it serves a purpose of stopping the uh, amount of food that goes in. People get more hungry, less hungry. Wow. So those are the three different procedures, all of them. And, and so it was broken up. There were a number of kids that had one. There were another number that had the other and a third that had the third. And, and they looked at these uh, over time, over the, as I said, six months, year, two years, and three years. And they looked at a number of things baseline before they went in. And I thought this was somewhat interesting. The, the mean or average BMI, the uh, body mass index, mm-hmm. Uh, which, if you're not familiar with that, it's just a it's a way of gauging the relationship between the weight of someone and their height. And normally, for an adult, uh, a good range is somewhere between 18 and 25. Uh, it varies a little bit more for children. But the, just to give you that as a concept, someone who's in the BMI range as an adult of 18 to 25 is of normal weight. So if you're above 25 to 29 or so, you're getting overweight. When you're above 30 and going higher, then you're getting into obesity. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so the the average BMI of these 242 kids was 53. And some of them had a high up to 88. It was, you know, pretty intense, wow. the, some of these kids. So at the end of the study, uh, the things that showed was that many of the problems that the kids had, like high blood pressure, um, kidney problems, depression, um, micronutrient issues occasionally, and um, dyslipidemias. And when I say dyslipidemias, mm -hmm. uh, I'm talking about lipids like cholesterol, triglycerides. Everybody knows about LDL and you know, HDL, the high-density lipoproteins and the low-density lipoproteins. We all have those buzzwords now. So all of these things were looked at, including diabetes and a number of other uh, programs. So over this period of time, when they looked at it, uh, there were a number of things that happened. The kids, uh, at the end of the three-year period, many of them lost up to 40 kilograms, uh, wow. which would be which would be about 90 pounds over three over, years. Yeah. Over three years. And, and they were, and they were able to maintain it. That was the important part. Yes. yes. Yeah. They and, also, go but ahead. this is after, so they did the surgery and this is after three years. Well, they start, you know, they, they looked at the study, they did the surgery. They, they looked at all the kids. They did studies on them. They got their weight, their height. They measured blood levels of certain things, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then they did the surgery, one of the three types of surgeries. And over the next six months, one year, two year, and three year, they would come in and they would visually test them. They would do blood tests on mm -hmm. them. They would do a number of other things. And within at the end of the three-year period, they had pretty good results. A lot of kids, many of the kids... And there, you could look in the New England Journal of Medicine for this. I don't want to start giving lots of numbers because then it, you know, people's minds go off uh, listening to percentages and things like that. But there was significant improvement in weight reduction. There was also significant improvement in the lipid problems. There was significant improvement in kidney problems um, and blood pressure. Blood pressures came down to normal in many of these. And, and again, these were done without other medications. So, you know, you talk about the statins right now. Everybody's thinking about taking statins to lower your cholesterol. They didn't do any of these. They didn't give the kids statins also. It was strictly mm. the surgery and trying to change the lifestyle a little bit. And they saw good results in many of these cases. Now, uh, many of the pre-diabetics or the type 2 diabetics actually went back to normal. The type 1 diabetics, which we've discussed mm -hmm. on many of our shows, the ones where you actually need the insulin, it's more genetically oriented rather than lifestyle oriented, um, they didn't change. I think there was one death in the, uh, in the study. Mm. Uh, but some of the other problems that came up where they saw micronutritional uh, depletions. And I talked about this with Pushan. One of the concerns I had was that kids would not ab absorb uh, their vitamins and things like that. So we saw that there was uh, low iron and ferritin levels, and ferritin is related to iron, and iron is related to hemoglobin, and hemoglobin is related to oxygen, so it's very important. Also, vitamin B12, vitamin A, vitamin D, uh, all of the things that we talk about and we're all taking our supplements all the time, a lot of those had uh, drops in their levels. 
So this was an important factor that we needed to relate to uh, as we go into the future. So it's not just simply have the surgery, lose the weight, and you're going to be better. Hmm. I see. Uh, so so th- what, what, they've, what they tracked was these micronutrients, they weren't being held in the body after the right. surgeries. Right. In fact, they weren't, the problem was they either weren't being created or they weren't being absorbed through oh. foods. Not enough because in certain cases, the absorption ability that happens in the stomach uh, was, and the small intestine, as we've spoken of, of on many occasions, didn't happen mm. as appropriately. So this is something that's very important for us to look at. And then some of the kids needed intra-abdominal surgeries. Some of them had other procedures that happened after they had the surgeries. So as we, as we move forward, uh, an interesting uh, set of words came up for me. Uh, you know how we talk about dog years? Mm-hmm. You know, we kid around and say, uh, in terms of dog years, I think we've always used seven years of a dog's life as mm-hmm. one of ours or something like that. Well, the medical community is now talking about uh, something called pound years. Hmm. And what they're saying is that kids that have too many pounds at an early age will have problems if they, as they go into adulthood, and this is going to be uh, another part of the discussion we're going to have in just a few minutes. So the hypothesis is that uh, doing lifestyle changes, they found that it didn't help as much, especially with the severely obese. They needed something else. Uh, The ones that uh, were severely obese were not able to uh, lose all the weight and, and improve as well. They needed the bariatric surgery, but we need to, as we move forward, we need to look at ways to improve that surgery and to improve the problems with uh, the loss of micronutrients, et cetera, et cetera. But at least it does give some hope that there are some things that could be done. Now, of course, you know, the reason that we're talking about this and you and I talk about uh, on our show all the time is prevention. Uh, The best treatment for all of this is to not have obesity happen. And so that starts with lifestyle uh, at an early age. Mm, Yes. So we talk about that. And so I just wanted to talk about the bariatric surgery, which we didn't uh, talk about too much before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, uh, the idea of the parents becoming motivated more and more to not have their children become obese. So even though these ideas that these other surgical procedures are out there, it doesn't mean they're uh, superb and there could be better ways of doing it. So, so Glenn, did they also show in this study um, uh, the families and did these children come from obese families? They looked at they looked at a number of things in the study. They looked at and there was nothing really specific. There were various mm-hmm. economic groups, uh, various obesities in the in the family. It, it varied. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There were many variations on that. But certainly, if you have obese parents, there's much more of a tendency to consider the probability that the children are going to be obese. But it wasn't. It was a, a wide variety. Mm-hmm. of people so, because that always interests me um uh that 
you hear the word, oh, it's genetic. It's genetic. So it's passed down. So my grandparents were obese. My parents are obese. Now I'm obese. Um, but I've also seen individuals who've been able to change their lifestyle, mm -hmm. that they have worked their way out of that issue. Um, as they've, you know, especially in the, uh, like later teen years. Right. Um, so though can a situation where, um, it is based on genetics that it is actually obesity is passed down into the generations. Genetics are certainly a part of it. And mm -hmm. we're finding, we've talked about genes, the leptins and the uh, ghrelins, I believe is the word. Uh, <laughs> like Ghrelins. Ghrelins. <laughs> and I may be pronouncing that incorrectly, but there are enzymes and there are products in the body that cause um, appetite suppression, let the body know. You know, we're a, feed, a biofeedback mechanism, the body is. Mm. So when you get hungry, you eat. So there are, there are certain... Uh, there are certain chemicals and proteins and enzymes that relate to digestion and to eating and appetite and appetite suppression. So some people don't have any of these, so they're continuously hungry all the time. They never know when they're full. Uh, some people never get hungry. Mm -hmm. So there's certainly an aspect of that. Uh, but even that aspect, we, we know in many cases that genetics... Uh, sometimes they're hardwired and it's sometimes uh, it's the software you, where they're actually switches. So you have capabilities of turning on and turning off certain genes with certain lifestyle changes uh, just because, and we've talked about this with heart problems and this will lead me into my next topic. Uh, some people that have genetics for heart disease, uh, if they change lifestyles, they decrease the uh, probability mm -hmm. of of having the heart disease doesn't necessarily mean it goes away totally. Right. But there are many complicating factors to this. It's not just simply calories. It definitely is not mm -hmm. just stop eating. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's not that. It's also, we look at now, it, eating is certainly part of it. The types of foods we're eating, the lack of physical exercise. You mentioned this last week where they're cutting out physical education. The um, People are not walking on their streets anymore, walking to the park, doing these things. Mm -hmm. A lot of uh, kids and adults are spending a lot of screen time, so to speak. Right. And these are different aspects. So all of these things come into play uh, in terms of childhood obesity, which could become the, the main concern we have before was that if you're obese as a child and you go into adulthood, uh, with the same obesity, many of these things, kidney problems, depression, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, metabolic diseases like diabetes, lipid diseases, heart attacks, strokes, all of these things are going to be increased in use. So we're trying to motivate families uh, to uh, prevent these things mm -hmm. rather than allow them to happen knowing, oh, we don't have to worry about it. There's always bariatric surgery. Right. <laughs> but that's not as quick as a pill, though. <laughs> right. Or a pill. So uh, another another study that came out and I, I, you know, I truly believe not that I'm biased that because Magical Medical Tour talked about childhood obesity, all of these studies then came out afterwards. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm sure we we uh, we motivated the American Heart Association. <laughs> to uh, do a study. So just recently in 2015, the American Heart Association, which is the group that's responsible, you know, when you learn CPR 
and all of these other things that we do in communities. Mm -hmm. That comes from the American Heart Association. It's a big group of uh, physicians and others in this country that are focused on the heart. A lot of cardiologists, internal medicine, uh, they're in uh, the American Heart Association. And they just did a scientific session recently, and they were talking about obese kids. And they were going down to ages, down to at least eight. And what they were seeing was that they were, they were potentially showing signs of heart disease at age eight. Wow. And the way they did it, there were about 40 kids. Now, in the first study that we uh, talked about with the bariatrics, they didn't have a control group. So there were issues with this. It was strictly people that had the bariatric surgery. That was one type of a test. But in this study... They took uh, 20 kids that were normal, and they took 20 kids that were obese. And what they did was they put them in an MRI scanner, and they looked at their hearts and their heart function. And they saw that in uh, a number of the children that were obese, they were seeing evidence at an early age of heart disease, thickening of the... Uh, wow the wall of the heart, the left ventricle, and they were seeing difficulty in function. Now, here's one of the scary parts of this, is that none of the kids had any symptoms. So no kid was complaining of chest pain, no kid was complaining of shortness of breath or mm. weakness or anything like that, which is very scary, which means you think, well, my, just because my kid is overweight doesn't mean he has heart problems. But this is, this is a study that proves that that may not be true. They saw the uh, obese children had the mm. high risk for future uh, problems with cardiovascular disease. And at this point in time, we talk about the future. So an eight-year-old might not have something till they're 40, right? right? But this the signs appears... signs there. But, but it, it's, yes, the signs are there. And it may be changing because we may see in the future that kids now at 16, 18, 20 are now having heart disease, just like we're seeing kids now that are having diabetes at an early age that's not related to the genetic type 1. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and this study in itself is an important warning to parents. And the problem with this study was that the, the really high-risk kids that had either severe diabetes or were so morbidly obese that they couldn't fit into the scanner, they were left out. Hmm. So hmm. that means that there's even more of a possibility that by being obese, you have the opportunity to develop early heart disease. And this is what we're trying to fight against. So hmm. I, I think that us here on Magical Medical Tour, the scientific community, the medical community, everyone we know, nutritionists, dietitians, everyone trying to promote a process now that has to do with uh, being careful about what you eat and changing activities and doing more in terms of weight control, exercise, etc. Because it's not just about being or looking fat. It's about kidneys, blood pressure, mm -hmm. heart, nutrients, everything else. Mm. It's pretty intense. Oh, it is. Wow. Yeah. And it's... so, again, I want to, you know, give kudos to uh, Michelle Obama and her cause for childhood obesity 
mm-hmm. uh, to eliminate it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Any thoughts on that? Wow. <clears throat> How do we educate the parents? <laughs> well, I think it always ed- comes back to that, you know, Glenn. Is it's like, I mean, you can educate the children to a certain point, and and as you were talking, I was imagining you going into schools to talk about, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, you know, right. just just to have a great fun conversation with the young kids. You know how I could remember when my son would come home and go, "I have to push in my chair." Because mm. someone could trip, you know, all these right. things that they've learned and they've, they've been influenced to go, you know, no, I, I don't want to eat that or I don't want to drink this. And I, I think you can do it to a certain amount with the children, mm-hmm. um, but they still go home and what's on their plate and what's in their household and in their cupboards. You know, when I have uh, parents go, oh, yeah, my child only likes potato chips and soda. And I look at them and go, mm-hmm. so... Yeah. Why do you keep buying it? <laughs> oh, right. because they like to eat it and they won't eat anything else. <laughs> and I kind of yeah. go, you know, it's like, um, well, don't give them a choice. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's also other parts too. It isn't just the kid and, and the parents. It's the, um, it's the community. It's the people that are producing our foods and putting things in our foods that are not necessarily helpful for us. Yes. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, so we all need to be part of that. One of the things that is important, though, is the long-term ramifications, and that's what we need to be thinking about. Yes. yes. Um, so, so now it's 2015, so it's uh, three years after the last right. uh, statistics. That was for the bariatric surgery. Right. Some other things that came up were that just lifestyle changes alone, where they took some kids and tried to do lifestyle changes with them, that didn't last, Mm. especially with the morbidly obese. After two years, they were gaining weight again and doing uh, a lot of things that were uh, not correct. Right. I think the lifestyle changes, if if you're going to take the child out, you need to take the whole family. You need to take the whole family. Uh, These are serious issues, and the whole family needs to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always talk about that. They learn it yeah. from the top, and uh, you can set examples for your kids uh, in many cases. But sometimes, as Pushan talked about the other day, you know, there are some parents that are working very hard and they try and make a meal for their kids. They don't, but they're not at home because they're working, and the kids are picking out what they want to eat. So it becomes a little more difficult all the right. time. But I think setting up uh, the right milieu <laughs> uh, in honor of our uh, French uh, listeners uh, that's a, that's important but there's mm-hmm. so many parts to this thing and and it's when we talk about it becoming an epidemic a, a non uh, communicable ec- epidemic mm-hmm. so you can't catch this like you could catch measles but it's still an epi- epidemic and it's yes. causing problems for our future and it does have cost uh, related issues for our whole society. If we're spending lots of money on treating 19-year-olds having heart attacks, mm-hmm. absolutely, etc., very sad. Children should have the opportunity to live a long, a long healthy life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but so much for that. Mm. Oh, my. So, <laughs> so uh, hopefully in the next uh, year, in 2016, that they'll have some numbers out so that we can see if 
anything's balanced out since three years ago, since those last statistics, because I, I do believe, uh, just looking back at um, some of my notes here, that that uh, that uh, the number of obese children mm -hmm. you were saying is four million. Now, do you know when that's that statistic was given? That was given at the time of the study. Okay, so that was back in twenty two thousand seven. Right, and okay. it's and it's getting bigger. It is getting bigger. And we talked about uh, not just that, and that was in the United States alone. Yes. Uh, so uh, yes, last time when we were speaking with Pushan, uh, we were also talking about the world. Yes, yes. Uh, so it's big numbers everywhere. Yes, yes, there is. I mean, I I, I know my friends from Asia. Uh, they were they were very clear about that. They said that uh, you know the. The Japanese were so slight at one time, but now because of all the fast food, they are also starting to become a little overweight. Yeah. I know. So sad. What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> we're eating ourselves into oblivion. Oh, my gosh. Well, hopefully it starts to change because it's uh, just so... I, I, I don't know how people can feel good. Well, one of the things that... Uh, it showed in one of the studies that some of these kids have depression. Oh, of course. How can you not? So they're not feeling good. Yes. And yeah. I mean, as I said, when, as, they, as they remove the, the physical part um, in, a, in anyone's life, not, not mm -hmm. just children. I mean, even, even the elderly, even any of us, you remove our physical um, walking and movement of exertion right right which is good for us <laughs> it's it's they become lethargic and i i mean i have parents say oh yeah my child reads all day they don't want to go out and walk or play sports and i'm looking at them going you know how unhealthy that is how is that child's tendons and muscles and bones developing it's very sad i think i somewhere we're missing out on the education of educating, you know, the 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 people, uh, for example, the adults. Um, not on magical medical tour. Not on magical medical tour, but I think it needs to be broader than that. And I know I've seen different different hospital like Kaiser and different uh, hospital groups, and they're constantly put publishing magazines and books about eating healthy, being healthy, and exercising. But the communities just aren't listening. Well, you know, I talk about this all the time. Uh, where it's the difference between intellect and consciousness, mm. where intellectually you could talk to any one of these parents and they would know that being obese or, or being overweight is not healthy. Mm -hmm. They may know that, but they're not taking it to the level of consciousness. And that's, that's where we need to go. I always talk about uh, how, as a species, we need to be slammed in the face yeah. <clears throat> before we make changes. And that just seems to be the way it is. And I think that one of the things that, that should really be taught, even before reading, writing, and arithmetic, mm -hmm. is, is consciousness, ways to think, ways to discern things. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit more in uh, the show today, in fact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. That's, I, that's unless what we announce there's an alien race coming to eat the people who are obese. Yeah, 
<laughs> Believe me. <laughs> you know, you could, you could say that the actually we're just uh, an agricultural planet for another alien race, and yeah. they're they're making us all pate. Yeah. <laughs> and the obese ones go first because they're right. the juiciest, right? right. There you go. <laughs> I think people lose weight real fast. <laughs> yeah, unless we find out that the really skinny ones are going to be toothpicks. <laughs> I, don't, I still don't know which is worse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. I don't want to be the toothpick. It's okay yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or the dental floss. Yeah, there's lots of possibilities like that. That could be a, another show that we could have. Alien invaders. <laughs> Did we wake you up yet? <laughs> <laughs> right. We're getting hungry. You're going to be seeing us around your planet. When you see uh, solar flares and you start seeing uh, more uh, meteorites, those aren't really meteorites and things. They're just coming here to eat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're, we're going to another area right now. Another quadrant. Another quadrant, and this is where uh, I need your fanfare. We've talked about this many times, and I ask you to give a fanfare. We're going to go to Myth Takes. Mm. So do you have a fanfare for us? Yay! <laughs> well, there you go. I like that. So as you know, in Myth Takes, these are uh, medical myths that have been perpetrated throughout a long period of time that uh, people talk about. And since we're coming into winter... I just turned on my heat for the first time, and I know people in other parts of the country where it's minus 30 below don't understand that when it gets below 75 for me, that's winter. Uh, <laughs> so uh, my question for you, the way I usually bring up a myth, is, um, Christina, when um, you go outside into the cold, mm -hmm. uh, where do you lose most of your heat? Hmm. What part of your body? Huh. Let me think about this. Okay. Right. <clears throat> Where do we use, lose most of our heat? Yeah, I mean, it's the one that everybody says, make sure you cover this, because that's where you lose most of your heat. Isn't that funny? I uh, I can't, one, I, I, you know, the being raised... Uh, you keep everything bundled, right? Um, but I... I I want to say my hands and my feet. Hands and feet are definitely part of it. But the, the myth is that we lose most of our heat from our head. From our head. From our head. Uh, and where this myth came from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Myths should be laughed at. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, w the studies that came out, the, the, the scientific community kind of believes that this came out from studies in the 1950s from the military uh, where they were doing studies on hypothermia and what, what should happen. And then in the 1970s, they put out a, uh, a survival manual saying that about 40 to 50 percent of the body heat is lost from the head. Wow, really? And, and some people, the myth, you know, when a myth starts, it can go anywhere. So, it, but, but you just said the Medical Society put out a paper on that? No, the Army did. Oh, the Army did. Oh, uh, okay. Military, U.S. Army, a survival manual. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so keep your head, don't keep anyone else warm. Just keep your head warm. Keep your head warm because it, uh, they said between forty to fifty percent, but wow. the myths went up to sometimes eighty percent. But mm. basically, this is totally not true. That's why it's uh, always wear the hat, wear the two, keep your head warm. Definitely keep your head warm, and we'll talk about that for a minute. All parts of the body, every square inch of the body, mm-hmm. is capable of losing heat. Mm. So. Uh, it just then depends on two other parts. One, a surface area that's exposed, and two, the the amount of blood supply to certain specific areas. And there are a couple of areas that the body tries to uh, supply blood more to for thermoregulating purposes. That means when people are too hot, uh, sometimes the body, the blood flow to certain areas will increase and they will start sweating and that will cool them down. And those mm-hmm. areas are the scalp and face, the axillary regions, uh, the armpits, the groin, and the um, fingers and toes, you know, mm-hmm. the extremities essentially. But the reality is that if you walked outside and your entire body was unclothed, you were completely naked, you would lose uh, heat from all of those areas depending on the surface area. So in the case of the head, where we're saying we think we lose 40 to 50 percent, that's not true. The head uh, is about 10 percent of the body surface area. So you would really lose about 10 percent of the heat from that area. However, uh, there are areas that you can lose heat faster, and those are the areas around the scalp, uh, the mm. armpits, the groin, and the fingertips, uh, toe tips, and things like that. So the bottom line here is basically uh, keep warm and clothe yourself all over. Uh, definitely wearing a hat is important, and that will help prevent some loss. But part of it is because if it's unexposed, that's where you think you're losing your heat. Mm-hmm. If you just wore a pair of pants and a hat, you would lose uh, your heat from your torso. Right. So whatever part you covered would be protected. Whatever part you uncovered, that's where you would lose most of the heat from. If you were in a survival situation where you really had nothing and you had to cover certain parts, your armpits, uh, your mm-hmm. groin, fingers and toes, and maybe face and head should be covered, but you're still going to lose um, heat from unexposed areas. Interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I thought it was, especially yeah. during this time. And again, it's a Myth take. We're breaking a myth. <laughs> okay, keep those fingers and toes covered. <laughs> yeah, and so you just, by putting your hands in your armpits. Well, you, that's what a lot of ball players do, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I don't know what to tell you about your groin. Well, so it, yeah, that's so interesting because, you know, the soccer players I know in Canada, that's what they would do. They'd stick their fingers, you know, under their armpits or else down their shorts Right, and they'll go. These are the the two warmest places, like, of their bodies. So that's what they <laughs> walk around on the field doing. <laughs> right, right. Hmm. So maybe there's something to that, huh? Yeah, I think so. I think so. You definitely want to keep that warm. But the key here, especially during as we go into the winter season, and it's obvious, but uh, stay warm all over. So- yeah. And, and definitely wear a hat, just because we've busted the myth that most of our heat doesn't 
uh, get lost from the head right. doesn't mean we don't lose heat from the head and doesn't mean that we won't be warmer if we cover our head. So I, then now I have a, a medical question <clears throat> concerning keeping warm. Well, all right. Because I know when I was a child, mm-hmm. uh, it was hard to bundle me up because I would get so hot. I would perspire, which is also not good as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, you're all damp and then you start unzipping your jacket and then it right. gets really cold because your your skin is so damp, right? Right. And of course, I get to school and I'm unzipping everything and taking it off because I'm sweating underneath the jackets. And, you know, I've noticed the children at school are the same thing. The minute the parents walk them to the gate, next thing you know, their jackets are all being thrown off. Right, Because mom and dad aren't watching. And I was laughing these last few mornings because it's been very cold here in Los Angeles. It's been like uh, under 50 in the morning when we get there. And I see these kids just stripping down. Right. I go, are you not cold? And they go, no, we're so hot. I mean, what is, I, because they're younger, you know, they're, they've got higher metabolism, of course. I mean, is that good for them? Yes, it's okay. Uh, now it depends what you're actually asking is good. Like, is like it for better? them to are you remove their jackets good? or whatever because they are too hot and they are starting to sweat. Uh, yeah, if you're in a protected environment, in other words, if you're still outside. But you see people that um, runners, for example, joggers, will put on a pair of gloves, a little hat. Yes. And a pair of shorts and a light shirt, and <laughs> after a little while, they're sweating and feeling okay. The whole concept really uh, is very interesting in how complex and, and integrated the body is. This has to do, as you said a little bit ago, uh, it's about metabolism, but it's about, also about thermoregulation. And there are many parts of the bro- body, uh, including the brain and the thyroid gland, mm-hmm. the hypothalamus and the thyroid gland, and... Uh, all of the tissues uh, deep inside, the internal organs versus the skin, it's all trying to be balanced, just like we try and keep a balance of our temperature. We try and be around 98.6. Mm-hmm. We try and have a specific pH around 7.4. We try and have a specific heart rate and respiratory rate. We also want to have a uh, a certain regulation of our body temperature and the body protects us. If we're out in the desert, just the opposite, and it's really hot, Mm -hmm. we start the sweating. So we try to cool off. So our body is always trying to protect us. So the key here is to make sure that it's within a balance. There might be people that have uh, certain diseases, let's say someone with Alzheimer's or somebody who's on medications, uh, psycho psych psychiatric medications that may affect their, um, thermoregulating that they may not feel the cold uh, Mm. as much and they may be extremely hot in a place that's extremely cold. You have to be very careful and watch them carefully because if temperatures get down to a certain point, you certainly have to worry about frostbite and injury to skin. I think we've discussed that in other uh, shows. So mm-hmm. it, it is a balance, but if the kids are warm enough and, and they're comfortable and they're not causing damage to the skin and the environment is okay, uh, they can get uncovered. But if you're out there in a wind chill factor, uh, freezing. Where it, yeah, <laughs> freezing and it's minus 30 degrees and the kid says, I'm 
I am warm, I want to take everything off, then uh, don't let them do that. And then once you get back into normalcy, uh, it might be a good idea to have them checked out medically to make mm-hmm. sure they don't have a medical condition or they're on a medication that's affecting that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good point. Okay. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, we, we are in Southern California, so the sun is shining brightly as it's 50 degrees outside <laughs> Fahrenheit. <laughs> Yeah, and it's tough when you try and talk to a Canadian or someone else who is used to the minus 30 and we're whining. I know. Yes, yes, yes. I have uh, my siblings used to come down here when we were in our down jackets and they would be in their shorts and T-shirts. Right. <laughs> and we'd go, okay. <laughs> right. How wrong they are. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, appropriate. So the last thing I want to talk about, I want to move on. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about something I do as a medical guide that, that I believe is very important. You know, I went into becoming a medical guide from emergency medicine because I, I saw that people were having difficulty making medical decisions. Medicine is extremely complex right now, uh, and it's tough to make medical decisions. And one of the things I do as a medical guide is to help people figure out the best decision for themselves. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about decision-making from my point of view and uh, give you a couple of tips uh, on making your own medical decisions. Now, there's many opportunities to make medical decisions and health decisions. It isn't always just about medicine because you have to treat something. Sometimes, as we talked about before, you could prevent something. So there are Mm -hmm. health decisions. Uh, So there are different categories. One might be a limited concept or no opportunity to make a decision. And I saw this a lot of times in the emergency department. Somebody would show up uh, with a fractured leg. They're out of town. They don't have their own private doctor Mm. with them and everyone else. And the leg is fractured, bleeding, and it needs to be operated on. So at that point, there aren't too many decisions that have to be made. You're in the hospital, and the orthopedic surgeon is looking at you and saying, what do you want to do? Very few people are going to say, well, I don't know. I'd like to take a month to think about it. You don't have that opportunity. So Mm -hmm. there are some decisions that just have to be made instantly, and you don't have any more opportunities. Although I would always say that one of the things that's important is to try and think about making medical decisions before anything happens. And that way, Uh when something does happen, you can uh, be a little more prepared for it. Um, There are some times that there's a relative... Uh, situation. Somebody comes again into the emergency department. A mother comes in with her child, uh, fever, has a cough, uh, mild sore throat, runny nose, and the mother wants an antibiotic. And I look at the child and, and it appears to me that the child has a virus. And I say to the mother, the antibiotic won't necessarily work on this virus. And the mother is insisting. So I may say to the mother, I'm going to write you a prescription for an antibiotic so that you don't have to make another doctor's appointment, incur another expense, and go from there. But I would like you not to fill it for a day or two. If your child gets a lot worse and you feel like you need to, go fill it. But if the child starts getting better, then it's better for your child, better for uh, your child's future, because if the antibiotic really doesn't work and then the child gets sick with something else, they may not be uh, able to use that antibiotic. 
So there are some times that you have relative emergencies and you need to think about things. And then you have long-term uh, concepts that you have to make decisions about, end-of-life decisions, advanced directives, the five wishes. How do you want to be treated uh, if you go into a coma during a surgery or if you have brain damage? These are multiple different types of decisions you have to make. Um, and we talk about other things that are just simple. You you decide that you want to take an alternative medicine. You don't want to take a statin and you want to take some other kind of a cholesterol potentially lowering medication that's in the form of an herb or uh, something like that. So these are alternative medicine decisions mm -hmm. that you have to make. And then there's critical short-term decisions. Like, for example, you go into the doctor's office and you get diagnosed with cancer. And then they start saying to you, while you can't hear anything else after the word cancer, they start saying radiation therapy, chemotherapy, surgery, all of these things. So all of these situations require you to make decisions. And so the thing I'm going to talk about today is to try to help on your own to make some of these decisions. And the first way to look at this is always to be uh, informed. So the first thing I talk about is the risk-benefit ratio, and I look at it like a numerator and a denominator, and that means a fraction, right? When I say a numerator, that's the number on the top. Mm -hmm. The denominator is the one on the bottom. So if you have time to make a decision, do you want to take this drug? Do you want to have this cancer treatment? Do you want to have this surgery? Whatever. You sit down and you write as many positive reasons as you possibly can in your mind, and this can be in conjunction with family and friends and colleagues and your doctor and your nurse and anyone else, write as many benefits as you can and put them in the numerator. And then sit down and write all the risks involved. The risk could be that you, if you're taking an antibiotic, it could cause something in my bowels where I get a colitis and I, I ruin my my gut flora, things like that. There could be side effects. There could be allergic reactions. You know, when we listen to all these commercials and they tell you how good a drug is in the last 15 <laughs> seconds, someone with the fastest voice in the world tells you if you have a heart disease, blah, 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 <laughs> kidney problems, and, and death. Right? No, death is very quiet. Death. Death is wrong. And also, and you can have cut. death. So, all of the negative aspects. The risks should be in the denominator. And just pile it on. Make mm -hmm. as many as you can. And then take the number. So let's say you have um, 10 positive parts for the numerator. And then you have to put in the number for the denominator. And you have uh, a certain number of negative parts. So then you divide the denominator or the lower number into the upper number, the numerator. If that number is greater than one, that means there's more benefits than risks, and you should consider having the procedure, taking the medication, doing whatever you have to do. If the number is equal to one, that means there's the same number of risks as benefits, then you need to think about it. You still probably want to consider doing it, because just because there's a risk doesn't mean you're going to have that problem. Not everybody that takes an antibiotic dies from it. So if it's greater than one, go for it. If it's one, 
think a little more. If it's less than one, that means there's more risks than benefits. Then you have to think very clearly about either you need to start thinking of finding more benefits and or not going for the procedure, not going for the medication, not taking the herbal uh, treatment. Does that make sense to you right there? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So, <laughs> the so pros, those pros and cons, man. <laughs> yeah. So put them together in a numerator over mm -hmm. a denominator and divide it. And go take your time, write every single thing that you could think of as a benefit for it and write that in and just count it as a number. Mm -hmm. Every mm -hmm. single risk. Mm -hmm. And keep doing it until you have it in an appropriate manner so that you can then begin to make your decision. Right. So that, that's the risks and the benefit part of the decision-making. Mm -hmm. The second part is the effect, the safetiness, or the effectiveness of it. In other words, you may take something, uh, and there may be no risks involved in it, but it may not treat it. You know? <laughs> then why are you taking it? Right, exactly, exactly. So <laughs> if somebody says to you, I have this um, thing here, that I want you to take, and there are no risks in it, and the, and the benefits are good, but then you have to ask the question, is it effective? Is it going to actually work on what I'm trying to have it work on? And if that's where you need to speak with your doctor, speak with other people, and get the idea that this procedure is actually effective for it along with the risks and the benefits. Now, there's a, there's a thing that we do in statistics and in medicine that's kind of confusing, but it's an interesting number. It's called N as in never, N as in never, T as in Tom. So it's the NNT, and that stands for number needed to treat, mm -hmm. Okay. Now, what you want to do and have a discussion with your doctor when you're deciding whether or not this antibiotic is good or this pill is good or this procedure is good or this uh, radiation therapy or something is good, you would like to know from your doctor the NNT, the number needed to treat. And what that kind of means, it's a little complicated. You, you can Google it and look it up, and there are explanations and calculations for it. A lot of statistical things, but you're just looking from your doctor for a number. Mm. And the idea is you want to get the number needed to treat. And when I say treat, I mean effectively. I don't mean just to treat it. So it has to be effective. That means that whenever a procedure is done, for example, on somebody... It can either help them do nothing or harm them, right? So you mm -hmm. need to know how many people would need to be treated uh, that it would be effective for. So the ideal perfect <clears throat> one is the number one. So if I take an antibiotic and it's going to cure my strep throat, and the number everybody that takes it essentially is going to have a successful treatment and it's going to be effective, the number needed to treat is one. That's the number you want to hear from your doctor. If you hear that the number is 100, that may mean that 100 people have to have that surgery before one, people is, one person is successfully treated. Mm, mm, mm. Got that? Yeah. So numerator and denominator for risks and benefits. Mm -hmm. Then the effectiveness. Uh, you want to know about the effectiveness, effectiveness and the number needed to treat. Mm 
Certainly there's cost and social aspects in making decisions. Uh, we don't really need to get into that. The other part of it I want to talk about is your own inner counsel. I always think that it's important that aside from actual statistics, you have to go with your own gut feeling. Someone that's 95 years old who has metastatic cancer and they're offering chemotherapy and radiation and, and surgery and you have to look at quality of life and they could prove to you that the cost is okay and the uh, benefits might outweigh the risks. You also have your inner counsel. And I think it's also important to look into yourself and say, even though this might be good, do I want this for myself? So I think that's an important thing within the whole process before you make your final decision. And then you don't want to make a decision by indecision, by just waiting and waiting and waiting and not deciding. And then sometimes that can decide. So you, again, get diagnosed with cancer and you say, well, I want to take three or four years to make my decision. By that time, it might be too late. That's decision by indecision. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Decision by indecision. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I so think these that's, are very good points, Doc. Good. So mm -hmm. that's uh, from a medical guide point of view. When I work with uh, my clients, mm -hmm. we go through all of these things. And of course, there's other possibilities. You know, if you got to a store, if you went to a health food store and you decided you want to take this herb and you saw two of them together uh, that were the exact same ingredients and they both had the same risks and benefits and everything else and it didn't matter much, you could always flip a coin. <laughs> and not that. But when it comes to something a little yeah. more serious, the coin flip is not the best way to do it. The numerator over the denominator for the risks and benefits, the efficacy, will it actually uh, help me? Mm -hmm. And then the uh, number needed to treat mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh. all of those. No, I think that's wonderful. I think those are very down to the point. And, you know, especially when people are caught in a situation where it's a surprise. You know, th these are the three steps that you need to take quick. Yeah. And yeah. if you can, if you can have this discussion with yourself before anything happens mm -hmm. so that you know that if you're in the emergency department and somebody says to you, your leg is fractured and we want to do this mm -hmm. and you've thought about it and you decide, okay, what are the risks? What are the benefits? Can I wait until I, can you do something now for me that will stabilize it so that I can get back to my doctor and my home and my family, uh, if you've gone through that process and you have that thought process good, then you might be able to ask that question from the doctor and they may say, well, actually we can. We could put it in a cast right now. It'll, it'll be stable. But if you're going to be home in the next two days, you should get home as quickly as possible and then see your doctor. In fact, I'll call your doctor and get them ready for you. Those mm -hmm. kind of things. Right. Uh, you can have those discussions. So I think the concept here is aside from just learning the proper way to make decisions by being informed and going through a process by practicing that process ahead of time when you don't really have the pressure of having to make that decision. Mm -hmm. it's, it makes it better for you when uh, something like that might come up in the emergency. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, we, we're, I, I just had a great thought, but we're coming to the end of our show. No, I want your thought. No, want, no, no. I'll share I the thought with you after because that would be very cool. Anyways, uh, <laughs> um, Doc, do you have a health tip for us today? Um, I do, and I and it it partly goes to decision making. Hmm. So um, there's a 13th century Japanese Buddhist Zen master. He was a priest. He was a writer, a poet, a philosopher. Uh, his Zen master Dogen. 
And he, in fact, uh, started his own school of Zen in Japan. And he wrote a number of things, as I said, poet, writer, etc. He wrote uh, many things. And uh, one of them is, and please excuse my pronunciation, but the Shobo Genjo. Shobo Genzo. Uh, and it's basically a treasure of the true Dharma eye. That's what he calls it. And it's a series of articles and his ideas on things. And one of the things he looks at, he has this concept of we're all time beings. We exist in time and, and time is a being itself. Mm-hmm. And life is made up of moments in time. And there are many of these moments in each day. Uh, And he actually has a number for it. And again, as a Zen master, he doesn't think of time in terms of seconds, days, hours, minutes. But he thinks of uh, it in these certain moments. And there are billions of these moments. And what he says is that in every day, there are many of these moments that you can make the decision to change your will. (laughs) So going along with today's talk about decisions and making decisions like that, my health tip is taking that is if you have so many of these moments that are opportunities for you to make changes in your life, use one of these moments to become healthier in body, mind, and spirit. Mm. And what I will add to that is don't just say it. You have to do it. Amen. Yes. (laughs) You can say it and read about it all you want, but if you don't focus and do it, you're going to be at the same spot. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's a question. You have these opportunities to, to, to make changes. And when we talked about the childhood obesity and everything else, uh, all of these things can be done. You have many, 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 many moments in each day to change something. Mm-hmm. So take advantage of at least one of them. Absolutely. Well, there you have it, everyone. The wonderful health tip from our Dr. Glenn Woolman in... Right. The doctor's bag. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So we're closing up the doctor's bag for today. And I look forward to getting together with you uh, and Segovia and Yoga Hub and all of our magical medical tour uh, viewers and listeners who come to us each week to find out uh, things that can teach us about optimal health. I do want to thank all of my healers and my teachers for allowing me on my journey. And until next week, thank you, Christina and Segovia. I wish you all optimal health. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for another wonderful bag. Bag of goodies, bag of tricks. Love it. Um, And of course, we'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can connect with our Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where we continue to encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath. And of course, if you are watching or listening to our podcast, please um, share it with others and pass the link on to others that you know will benefit from our shows. You know, we're always grateful for your feedback and comments and suggestions. Um, Give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. Hi. 
Um, when I was a kid, my mom used to say that whenever there was a TV show on, I would always pick the one that had the medical shows. That was always my favorite. I always uh, uh, levitated towards that kind of a scenario. So I almost think it was a field that chose me. And um, and you know, and it was something that I felt more at home with. So it, you know, community service is something that I've always wanted to do. And what better way than to heal your community? Uh, very sweet.